Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 14 of Logicast. Uh, we've had a little break over the Easter holiday period. Um, I've been away to Vienna, uh, taking pictures of myself with my log-off tote bag outside various Viennese monuments. Uh, how about yourself, John? What did you do over the holiday period? Oh, I went to the in-laws for a bit and took kids out and all sorts. I didn't take any swag with me, I'm afraid. Oh, that's, uh, you know... We're going to have to talk about that in your appraisal, I think. So, you know. <laughs> we do those? <laughs> no, but you know, we're going to have to do them now. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, you um, can buy me one less beer on Wednesday then when we're out. Are we going out on Wednesday? Yeah, there's a Bright and Cloud event on Wednesday. Oh, yes, of course, which clashes with the uh, London AWS user group, I believe. So uh, Figures. Yeah, yeah, often the way. Uh, anyway, uh, we're not here to waffle about swag and uh, holidays. Uh, as you'll know, if you've listened to the podcast before, every week I collate uh, a, a AWS news roundup, uh, which I distribute uh, via email. And then John and I pick a subset of the articles that we've shared in the news roundup to talk about on the podcast. So we've picked a selection of articles that we'd like to talk to you about this week. Um, so let's go straight in to our, uh, one of our favorite topics um, of serverless. Um, and this article uh, is from the AWS Compute blog um, about a new Lambda feature that's been introduced uh, called Lambda Response Streaming. So, uh, John, I know you love talking about Lambda. <laughs> so uh, tell us more uh, about Lambda Response Streaming. Well, we've got to get the plug in that I'm a community builder in the serverless category. So I've got to of keep course. talking about it yeah. or, you know, community managers will come and beat me with serverless sticks. <laughs> I don't know what that would look like. A stick with a server on it or something. Um, <laughs> no, it would be a stick with no server on it because it's a serverless <laughs> stick. <laughs> oh, a self-beating stick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now we're going into the religious flagellation thing and we're moving on. So yeah, moving swiftly on. Lambda response streaming. Right. So let's do a few definitions first, and then it'll make a little bit more sense. Traditionally, and up until this came along, the way Lambda worked, much like a lot of APIs, was request response. Yeah. So you called the Lambda, the Lambda did a thing and sent the response back. That's pretty normal, right? That's kind of how most applications work. Response streaming sits more in the kind of web socket space and websocket is an api thing so again apis mostly request response but websockets are not necessarily request response it could be request response 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 you know it, it can do live streaming that kind of thing and that's kind of what this is doing this is an enabling the lambda to send responses back before it's finished processing you think well, why would you want to do that and how is that useful mostly it's for websites so you may have seen things like infinite scroll. That's that's a thing. Or um, media loading in after the main page is loaded in. That kind of thing. So you're kind of loading in the little bits first to get your user there and to keep them there. And then the big heavy assets after when their eyes are kind of already doing stuff. Because I don't know what the abandonment rate is, but it's something like you know 90% above two seconds of load time or something really tiny. So this is kind of helping in that area. It talks about in the article, time to first byte, TTFB, which is not Tata for now, not TTFN. It's not Tigger from Winnie the Pooh, um, <laughs> but it's, it's close. It's close. But the idea is because you're getting responses back to the client much, much earlier in the cycle, you are streaming them because, you know, everything's streaming. So you can respond to the user a lot faster. You have a much better kind of retention rate of people. Um, and just, you know, 
all good things basically this is very much more designed for um lambda back websites some apis could make use of this i could see that being a thing where you're returning a lot of data <coughs> excuse me so um projects i'm working on at the minute some of the api calls take you know five or six seconds to come back because what they're doing is they're looking to return all of the data whereas if you can return some of the data and your consuming code can take advantage of the fact that it's kind of paginated if you like that it's not having to the pagination kind of feeding it through then you can start your processing a lot faster you don't have to sit there for 10 seconds waiting for something to happen you can sit there for half a second and you've got some data and you can start chewing through it so that you've done most of the work before all of the data is available yeah so it's just speeding everything up moving everything through does work with function urls which is nice supported through serverless application model sam one of my favorite tools or native cloud formation which is great you can't do it if you're using certain um ways of talking to your lambda so you cannot use api gateway or application load balancers to progressively stream payloads but you can use the functionality to return larger payloads with api gateway Right, because Lambda has a soft limit, a hard limit of six megabytes if you're doing a, a one-off response, or a soft limit of 20 megabytes in six megabyte chunks if you're doing it via streaming. And that soft limit can be increased with a service request. So you can also use this to just send back much larger payloads if you need to. That's another thing that's kind of handy. When I think about time to first bite, I'm thinking it's a good measure of service in a restaurant. <laughs> it's not a bad one, is it? Yeah. But obviously that would be B-I-T-E rather than B-Y-T-E. But uh, So I guess if you want to use this, um, you'd need to, for existing functions, you need to rewrite them. Yeah, so it's only supported in the Node.js runtime at the minute, um, yeah. only Node.js 14x, so which is relatively new, but, you know, there we are. And you do have to rewrite how your handler works. So in the Node.js handler, you do exports.handler equals handler function for this you do export.handler equals AWS lambda dot streamify response and then you write your handler code so you do have to wrap your handler and then you don't just do a return you do response stream dot this that and the other so something you'll be using uh i don't think we have need for it particularly no. because a lot of what we're writing at the minute it's kind of all back-end stuff so the response it doesn't even get looked at because the work is more important than the response yeah cool okay let's move on to the next article for this week then um which um is around updates to the well-architected framework um so um obviously aws have this um well-architected framework, which basically allows you to analyze um, your AWS um, usage uh, against a number of um, pillars, um, such as reliability, security, cost optimization, etc. cetera. Um, uh, they added some um, couple more pillars recently. Um, I think sustainability, and I forget the uh, the other one that was added. Oh, it was uh, only sustainability. Recently. Sustainability was yeah. added in 2021, and they've added between kind of 2018 and now a whole bunch of lenses. So it's not yeah. a pillar, but it's kind of like a view on the pillars. Yeah. Um, excuse me. <laughs> For those aren't watch that aren't watching, Carl's just dying. It's fine. I just muted to cough uh, rather than uh, cough directly into your headphones, um, which would 
be considered rather rude. Um, so, uh, so in terms of these latest updates to the um, the well-architected framework, um, there's been uh, a number of um, pillar updates. Um, so, uh, the article goes on to explain that the operational excellence pillar um, has a new best practice on enabling support plans for production workloads. Um, so, um, it's something that, uh, that we're often talking to our managed service customers about, as you know, where you should and should not use. Um, AWS support. I'm sure AWS would like to use it on their every <laughs> single workload, um, but uh, typically um, we're only recommending to customers um, that they that they enable support on um, production workloads. Um, because uh, AWS support is a funny beastie. Because at the kind of layers levels that we're talking to customers that are using it, you have to apply it on a per account basis. We're sitting here recommending organizations, but you can't apply it to the whole organization unless you go for the the, the top tier, at which point you could then apply it to the whole org. So it's kind of, a, it's an awkward one. Mm-hmm. Um, then it uh, goes on to talk about the uh, security pillar. Um, so uh, a new best practice area on application security um, with eight new best practices to guide customers as they develop, test and release software, um, providing guidance on the tools, testing and organizational approach used to develop software. Um, then uh, the reliability pillar as a new best practice on architecting workloads to meet availability targets and uh, uptime SLAs. Um, and uh, they've added the resilience shared responsibility model. Um, into that as well so uh you're pushing oh, more responsibility f- out to the customers <laughs> i guess it's been a few weeks since we mentioned the um shared hello kitty cat since we mentioned the uh, shared responsibility model you know it comes up every so often doesn't it what the cat or uh... <laughs> both <laughs> yeah um, yeah, it's always there lurking in the background, waiting. Uh, I, I am actually talking about the shared responsibility model now, not, not the, the cat. cat. <laughs> uh, but this, this equally applies. This, this entire conversation seems to apply to both. Um, so, um, anyway, uh, there's also been some changes to the cost optimization pillar. This has got nothing to do with cat food or vet bills. Um, so, well, uh, which are expensive, I tell yeah. you that. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, the cost optimization pillar of the well architected framework now has uh, new best practices on automating operations as part of cost optimization efforts. Um, so, it's interesting yeah. that this has come up as a best practice on a pillar because it's DevOps as a concept had you know there was all sorts of what does devils mean to you me your mum your cat your fish your dog whatever one of the ones that i kind of always liked was it had this culture automation something or other and sharing right so automation was always uh, metrics and sharing there it is so it was always you know automate the hell out of everything so it's interesting aws are actually putting that into their guidance as well but on a cost of optimization level, because as you, as a business owner, well know, it's much more expensive to get an engineer to do a NAF job than it is to pay the engineer to automate that NAF job, and the NAF job's gone away. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then uh, we mentioned the new sustainability pillar, which I guess is not that new anymore. It's been around maybe six to 12 months, uh, but uh, they've uh, introduced uh, into the well-architected framework a clear process for selecting regions um, as well as tools for right-sizing services and improving the overall utilization of AWS resources. So um, the, the region selection is a, is an interesting one. We, I think we, we were talking to a customer or a prospect that was moving their entire operations into, I think, uh, a central European region um, away from 
a Western European region mm. um, simply because that region had better sustainability credentials. Um, so, uh, you know, no, sustainability... I think that was a, it might be another person that's doing it. That was a local business again, affiliated with the kind of cloud meetups that were doing that. Cause yeah. again, much better for the sustainability. Yeah. Also, it so... gives your engineers something to do. <laughs> <laughs> like uh yeah the, the they're sitting there twiddling their thumbs a lot of the time so <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's move regions that keep them busy yeah. <laughs> um yeah so uh that, that's some of the uh the, the pillar updates was there anything else you wanted to draw attention to in this article john uh not not specifically just to say that there's also 113 best practice updates so we've spoken about some best practice updates on the pillars but you know the article lists a whole bunch of them it's literally it's a laundry list of things that they've updated so if it's something you care about if it's if you're offering well architected reviews as a service provider or if you actually are aligned with these particularly then you should go and have a look at this article they have got some pillar specific white papers which will have been dealt with and i think the well architected tool will have also been updated to account for this because it should have been yeah, I mean, if we were going to talk to everything in this article, we'd uh, we'd need to have an entire podcast series on it. So uh, there's a, there's a huge amount in there, but I think we've covered the uh, the salient points. And uh, as always, the links to the articles will be in the show notes uh, if you want to go uh, away and, and read that for yourself. Um, so let's move on to the next article, um, which uh, yeah, it seems to be full of uh, shower enclosures because uh, it's got a big uh, advertising window at the top. And uh, that's what's in my browsing history uh, at the moment, shower enclosures. Uh, but if we scroll <laughs> down past the shower enclosures, uh, the you article's see, actually about... Mine's uh, talking about video recording and network storage with DaVinci editing, because I occasionally Google things to edit on my Mac. <laughs> Oh, well, it would be weird if I was both are showing the same ads. So, um, yeah. Anyway, scrolling past the ads, um, this article is about the launch of uh, a new gateway to connect on-prem with the cloud. Um, and this is uh, specifically um, AWS Elemental Media Connect Gateway, uh, which is a new cloud-connected software application to transmit live video between on-prem uh, multicast networks and AWS. So, why would we need that, John? What's the use case here? So it's a it's an interesting one. I've done quite a bit of work with streaming and distributing user-generated content out of AWS, right? You do that through things like CloudFront. You do that through things like Media Transcode or um, Elastic Media Convert or, you know, those kinds of things. And then you push them into kind of a bucket and CloudFront serves them and that all kind of works relatively well. However... All of that content had to get into the cloud before we could serve it out of the cloud, obviously, right? What this is doing is this is kind of accepting the point that you can't ever create anything directly in the cloud in terms of media because you don't have a S3-enabled video camera. That's not a thing, not yet, as far as I'm aware. So you do sometimes, if you're doing live streaming, need to be able to stream directly from your source to the internet you know you want to live stream to youtube it's a thing it is a thing you need to set your camera up such that it can talk to the service so it can talk to youtube and so on and so on and so on right i mean what we're doing here functionally yes we're recording but we are live streaming to the internet with cameras connected to our devices this is this is that but at like i want to say bbc but at bbc scale at like big broadcast scale rather than webcams on your on your screen scale so that's kind of why you'd want to do this, right? Because video distribution is difficult. It's tricky. There's a lot of work that has to get involved, that has to go into it. 
and this kind of helps in that regard so you can use some of the cloud services to stream from your on-prem camera feeds because obviously your camera feeds are on-prem and uh, interesting i've noticed that it runs in ecs yeah, I did see that. That's quite cool. So it runs in ECS anywhere. And I think what they're doing is they're basically saying, here's a thing we've built. You run ECS on your, you run ECS anywhere on your server, and then you run this in there so that you're not unlike something like an AWS outpost. So you're not having to plug things into your data center. You have a server, run it there. That'll work. Run it there. So I guess you're streaming locally to the AWS service and then syncing that back into the cloud. Yeah, that's that's how I imagine this works. Is go there is going to be a lag because there always is. You're limited by that annoying physical constant, the speed of light. You know, can't breach that. I'm afraid. So you are annoyed. Uh, you are limited by that. You are constant. annoyed. Yeah. Uh, you are annoyed by that constant. <laughs> oh, I'm annoyed by it regularly. Um, so you are limited by that constant because you know that's the speed limit of the universe. We can't breach that. I'm afraid. But yeah. So there's a bit of a lag, but then yeah, you stream to that and then stream out to the internet from there. I wish the speed of light would come to my house because I'm still limited by the speed of copper. Uh, but there we are. Uh, yeah, right limited for... by the speed of electricity in copper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving swiftly on to our next article. And this one's from the AWS Compute blog, and it's about implementing up-to-date images with automated EC2 image builder pipelines. Um, so... Uh, I know you've got some uh, contrasting views on this one, John. So uh, give, us, give us your thoughts here. I have never been a fan of the image builder service as a rule. I know I'm AWS certified. We're an AWS shop. We are, however, also a HashiCorp shop to an extent. I've always used Packer for this because it's just better. It's just better. You just, you know, you write your Ansible playbook. You tell Packer to go and run that. Packer does all of the legwork with the servers. Your playbook runs, saves your EC, uh, saves your AMI. Done. Move on with your life, right? And if you need to worry about dependencies and stuff, you just set it to run on a schedule so that your your GitHub or your GitLab or because this is a thousand years ago and you're still using servers, your Jenkins server is sitting there running it on a schedule so that you got your updates and that's kind of all dealt with. However. That was always sort of a, a manual schedule trigger, right? It was a cron for all intents and purposes. And again, what is this, the 90s? So this is a much more modern take on that. This is dependent pipelines that can be scheduled to run if there is an upstream update, okay? So run at the scheduled time. So you still have to tell it how often you want it to run. It won't just go meh and run. You have to tell it kind of how often to look for these updates. But it will only run if, say, the packages you're installing have been updated upstream or if the AMI you're basing that image on has been updated upstream. So it's not running all the time, costing you money and then just spitting out an image that's exactly the same as the one that you generated a week ago because nothing's changed. Yeah. So this is very important for a, a cost saving measure. Talks about notifications and things as well. That's kind of nothing new. That's just, you know, because it's in AWS, you can get SNS notifications. Your pipeline's run. Thanks. Great. The whole point is I don't want to know. The whole point is it just kind of deals with itself. But, you know, maybe you want to send that into Slack so that you've got just this kind of check for management types. That's okay. What is quite cool, though, is this cascading pipeline feature. This is something I've done before, but with Packer. So it's a bit of a kludge. What this one does is you have your, say, base image that you create, and that 
updates itself every week or whatever or whenever say update uh upstream packages are updated so if there's a new python version or there's new security updates in your os or, or whatever that does your kind of in-house base image that's got the standard packages that everything you you use is, has got so again you're talking about os patching you're talking about um, programming language versions and dependencies and that kind of thing and then what you do is you have a whole bunch of other pipelines that create, say, your web server and your middleware and your queue servers and so on and so on. And because it's a queue server because you're in the 90s and you're not using managed services, but there we are. And your upstream image has been updated because that's been updated because of your upstream dependencies. And then it then updates all the other ones as well. So you have one kind of upstream update. Python gets a new minor version, for argument's sake. And then all of your other server images get updated automatically because that one got updated. And the whole thing cascades through and you don't have to think about it. And it's only running when it needs to run. That's the kicker. Because yes, you can do all of this anyway on just a normal schedule and have jobs depending on other jobs and all that jazz. But this is only running when it absolutely needs to, which saves you money. Because it's not running on a server. This is a managed service and you pay for when it runs. So if it's not running so much, you're not paying so much. Happy days. So there was something there for you to like then. <laughs> also, but unlikely a, yeah. you're going to switch from Packer. It's unlikely. It is. It's unlikely because I don't like the opacity of EC2 image builder. With Packer, you get this whole streaming log that you can sit there and watch if you really want to. It makes debugging a lot easier. With the image builder, it's quite opaque and you have to sit there and wait for it to fail and then kind of dig through and it's just awkward hmm. cool uh, <clears throat> okay let's move on to our next article uh for this week um which uh, is about aws training um so uh, the article is entitled new data shows digital skills are more needed than ever um so uh, as we know there's a huge skills gap in the market but don't worry aws is running to the rescue with over 600 free cloud courses that can help. Um, so um, I must admit, I've not done a lot of the free AWS training myself. I've done some of the entry-level partner stuff. Uh, but when I've gone through um, certifications, I've used third-party training. Um, so I don't know how good the, the free AWS stuff is. Have you got any experience with, with this, John? Um, so I've used a little bit of the freebie stuff way back when, when I was sort of starting my cloud journey and I didn't want to invest any real money in it. So, you know, cloud practitioner freebie course and that kind of thing, which of course now has been redone to be this whole interactive game thing, which suits people younger than me. I'm for, for, for the listeners, I'm 32, so I'm not exactly ancient, but I kind of exist in the world of lectures still because I kind of like them. But yeah, so I did a little bit of that, didn't really value it, didn't really think it was that good, just probably because of how my brain's wired. And again, went down the Udemy, A-Cloud Guru, um, Skill Builder, those kinds of things, because that's what I tend to do. It is quite interesting, though, that AWS, yes, okay, this is a marketing thing because it's on aboutamazon.com. But, you know, we, we let Amazon do their marketing here because, you know, they, they uh, pay my mortgage. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's interesting because they're talking about we've got 600 courses. Great. I'm more interested in things like the GDP growth and the salaries and the skills gap and the other bits that they're talking about. Because, you know, advanced digital skills raised US GDP, okay, American company, by $1.1 trillion in a year. 
That's a number that's so big that most people can't conceptualize how big that number is. Right? I can write it. Well, I could write it in words. It's nine zeros. It numbers. Nine zeros. Nine zeros, it's 12 zeros. No, it's 12 zeros. It's, yeah, it's a big number, right? This is people just can't comprehend a number that big. The, the example I like to use doesn't involve trillions, but the difference between a million and a billion, right? A million seconds is a little bit over a week. A billion seconds is 30 years. <laughs> Yeah. And then a trillion is it's it's like about 150 years or something. It's it's huge amount. It's enormous. So yeah, over a trillion dollars of GDP to the US and six and a bit trillion globally, probably half a trillion in the UK, something like that. Just because of, you know, knowing which buttons to click. And yes, I'm downplaying it because this is what I do for a living. And because I do this for a living, I think it's easy. Yes, most people don't think what we do is easy and they think we're wizards. But, you know, it's a huge amount of money. You look more like a wizard when your beard is longer. You don't look like a wizard right now. So. No, that's wizened. <laughs> uh, I, I think I'm more withered, to be honest, <laughs> than wizard. <laughs> And then the um, next one, again, talking about the digital skills, sorry to cut you off, is yeah, no, pay increases. You know, it's adding to GDP. What does that do? Well, GDP is a measure of productivity. It's a measure of output. You In a pseudo-capitalist society, and I'm not going to start talking about late-stage capitalism and neo-feudalism and all of that nonsense. In the society we live in, you produce more. You have the ability to argue that you're worth more, so you get paid more. Great. We like that. The same level of advanced skills that are contributing six trillion dollars a year to the global output are giving pay increases to about 60 percent of people in the u.s you know of people that have been surveyed right so you make more you do more you earn more everybody wins brilliant because you know which buttons to click and yes i'm going to keep saying that only if you're doing click ops <laughs> oh, that's it. Well, it always comes down yeah. to clicking buttons, doesn't it? It comes down to clicking <laughs> buttons on the keyboard, I suppose, uh, regardless of, or, or the mouse, uh, depending on which way you're doing things. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. So, it'd be interesting to see um, how the uh, the training providers are responding to all of the, the increasing free library uh, of, uh, of AWS training that's available because obviously it's a huge market, the uh, the third-party uh, training market. So um, It's yeah, quite interesting. interesting that the article says that people want to learn. Like seven in 10 US workers are either very or extremely interested in the training. One of the things that we do as a firm, of course, because we're AWS partners, we get AWS certificates. I always find it difficult trying to find the time between work and family and exercise and all the other commitments I've got to actually do these. So self-paced is good for that because, you know, you can fit an hour in here, an hour in there, and it kind of works. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Okay, we've got one more article this week to talk about. I'm conscious of time. So let's uh, skip on to the final controversial topic uh, of uh, cloud um versus on-prem costs. Um, this is uh, an article from The Register with another one of their uh, fantastic uh, headlines. <laughs> uh, the headline is, just because on-prem is cheaper doesn't make the cloud a money pit. Uh, but the article is focusing on this uh, age-old debate of, is it cheaper to run your workloads in the cloud or on-premise? And uh, as on always- On-premises. Premises. Sorry, on-premises. Yeah, yeah. On-prem. Uh, so is it cheaper to run them in the cloud or on-prem? Uh, 
so uh, you know, and, and the answer, as always in this uh, scenario, is it depends. Um, so uh, and it, you know, often it depends on the type of workload. Uh, but it also depends on on how you're calculating the cost, I suppose. So I mean, yeah, um... you can't run anything for free on premises. You can't. You can say, "Oh, that didn't cost me anything." No, it did because you already bought the PC. Maybe for something else, but you already paid for it, right? You can run things for free in the cloud because there's free tiers and things. Maybe not that well in AWS because, like, I know Oracle Cloud. I know three Hail Marys and Turnaround, um, has a very aggressive free tier. So there's quite a lot you can do for free. Cloud repatriation, it is a thing, but it's not a thing to the level of media coverage that it gets. I can think off the top of my head of three people, companies, that have actually done it successfully for a good reason. And they had very distinct reasons for doing that. That's Dropbox, because storage costs, it is cheaper just to run your own. It's Zynga, who you won't necessarily have heard of, but they do lots of mobile games and things. And they were get, they were suffering with um, egress fees because just things calling in and out to a million, a billion mobile devices all the time. And then the one that it mentions here is 37 Signals, which if you're not familiar, they make hay and base camp. And for their sins, they made Ruby on Rails. And again, I would imagine it's, because of the amount of cross-communication between the services that they were getting stung by. But cloud repatriation, it's not a thing anywhere near the level of noise that it gets. And I think this is what this is touching on too, is data centers are expensive. The cloud is expensive. Everything's expensive. Pick your expense. Pick your poison. One yeah, of the... I mean... The article cool. talks about the fact that data center costs have simply increased uh, in line mm. with everything else. You know, energy costs have increased. Uh, a huge proportion of data center cost is um, electricity. Um, and those prices have just increased. Um, so, uh, you know, that's obviously reflected both in cloud bills and in on-premise data center bills. So on-premises. It's always data center on-premises. <laughs> yes. For, for, for the listeners, I get quite uppity about this. On-premise is wrong. The premise is an idea premises is a building you run it in your building that is on premises just harder to say it's one less syllable but if you if you <laughs> but it's say on-prem, it's, a, it's another syllable less and it's not wrong <laughs> it's an abbreviation so uh, yeah <laughs> oh dear <clears throat> it is a fun one right it is a fun one because we talk about repatriation it gets a lot of noise but one of my former employers kind of went Oh, well, this is a finance shop, right? Regulated industry, and they have a whole bunch of other things as well. And they went, oh, running regulated data centers is hard and expensive. We don't want to do that anymore. And then they lifted and shifted and went, our bill hasn't gone down. No, because you haven't re-architected. I mean, there's a Dilbert cartoon about this for crying out loud. Yeah, I mean, I always say to people, uh, the cloud is probably not the cheapest place to run your VMs. Um, so if all you're doing with the cloud is migrating from your on-premise virtualization cluster into an equivalent EC2 or other cloud providers are available, but we're going to talk about Amazon EC2. Um, it's probably going to cost you more, um, depending on how you've calculated your total cost of ownership on premise. I did the math of run <laughs> cost, and it was something like 30% more yeah. uh, if you ran everything 24 7. And the argument I've always had is, well, they've got to make money too. Where do you think they're doing it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole ba the base cap one, I've read articles about that previously, and uh, it was comparing uh, the cost of running everything in EC2 versus the cost of running it on Dell PowerEdge servers. Um, uh, you know, and, and of course, that's going to be cheaper. But uh, to your point, um, you know, it's all about what, what you're running in the cloud. And if you haven't re-architected to make better use of cloud native technologies, serverless and so on and so forth, 
then it's always going to be a more expensive place to to run your VMs. Unless, of course, you're a very small customer, uh, like some of the kind of startups and, and SMBs that we deal with, where there's no way you could buy, uh, you know, even one server uh, to run the type of infrastructure that you can run in the cloud with load balancers and multi-region availability and everything else. So it's horses for courses and, uh, you know, no, there's no right or wrong answer uh, that suits every organization. Um, so... Um, Anyway, uh, we could we could talk about this all day. Uh, mm. The debate has been raging on uh, for years, but we have uh, gone a little bit over time. So let's wrap up there. Thanks for that, John. Um, and uh, thanks for listening. Uh, that was Season 2, Episode 14 of Logicast. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode for you. And all things being well, we will have a special guest. Um, so more on that uh, next week. Uh, we'll see you again then. Thanks for listening.